Hello, folks, and welcome to Becoming Multiplanetary. I'm Rich LB, one of your co-hosts. And I'm Kage, also one of your co-hosts for today. In today's episode, we're continuing with the fourth part of our Humans in Space mega series collaboration with To The Future. With three episodes in the series so far, in the episode description right below us, you'll find a link to a really handy playlist we made just for you viewers that contain all the Humans in Space episodes in chronological order. So, if you feel you might have missed an episode in the series, don't worry, we got you fam. All both To The Future and Becoming Multiplanetary's episodes are right there, and we'll update this playlist as each new episode is released. Also, if you take a look in the description or the progress bar, we've included timestamps in this video so you can skip to a certain point if you like. In the first episode of the series, Jishuan and Sebastian told us the story of the pioneers, the first men and women to fly beyond Earth's atmosphere and enjoy the feeling of microgravity as they soared above our heads at over 20, 27,000 kilometers an hour. That then led into the second episode, with us here on Becoming Multiplanetary, where we explored the Travelers, the race for the moon. We explored the various programs that were part of this neck-and-neck -neck race, including the top-secret US Air Force Lunex project, the Soviet crewed lunar programs, the big Chungus rocket, Sea Dragon, and of course, the Apollo missions, from the tragedy of Apollo 1 through the final Apollo 17 mission and Apollo Soyuz. To the Future jumped in next and did an absolutely amazing job of bringing us up to speed on the Space Station era. A link to that video and the Humans in Space playlist is in the description. Leaving no stone unturned in his quest to bring us all the facts and history of the various space stations, Sebastian talked about how humanity went from a species trying to escape the grip of Earth's gravity to being locked in orbit around it for decades. Salyu, Skylab, Mir, the International Space Station, Tiangong-1, Tiangong-2, where humans learned how to survive in space for extended periods of time, and the possible future stations, Axiom Station, Independence-1, the Tiangong-3 Modular Station, and the Voyager Station from the Gateway Foundation. And he nicely rounded off with us returning to the moon this decade with the Artemis program and the Lunar Gateway, which is roughly about where we will start in today's episode. Thanks for the handoff, Sebastian. So now let's take this forward into the recent past, present, and finally, to the future. Yeah, puns. Or at the very least, the near future. So, our story today begins at the end of the shuttle era. Operating from 1981 to 2011, the Space Transport System program spanned across six orbital vehicles, logging 1,322 days, 19 hours, 21 minutes, and 23 seconds of flight time, with 133 successful missions and, unfortunately, two tragic failures. And it was finally wanting to an end after 30 years of service. 27% of all of the shuttle missions, a total of 36, delivered elements of the ISS. In fact, the shuttle delivered 78% of the International Space Station assembly missions. A total of 355 individuals had flown uh, in the shuttles, representing 16 different countries, including 306 men, 49 women, and unfortunately, uh, 14 casualties. It was at this point in 2011 when the shuttle fleet was retired that the International Space Station was considered mostly complete. The last six missions to ferry elements of the ISS were all from the SpaceX Falcon 9 as part of the commercial uh, resupply service program, although none of them were crewed. 
but we'll get more into Falcon 9 later. During the shuttle era, Soyuz flew 67 missions and ferried 130 individual passengers. Then, after the shuttle was retired, Soyuz flew an additional 80 individual passengers, many of which were NASA astronauts. In fact, for nine years, Soyuz was the only way for humans to get to the International Space Station. However, having only one way to get humans to the International Space Station for so long was a very big risk to take. That risk became reality on October 11th, 2018, when Soyuz mission MS-10 aborted at T plus 122 seconds due to a rocket booster separation failure. Thankfully, both cosmonaut Alexei Ovchinin and astronaut Nick Haig safely returned to the Earth due to Soyuz's robust safety protocols. But the MS-10 failure threatened to bring the Soyuz program to a halt. Had Soyuz mission MS-11 not been certified to fly for its December 3rd mission two months later, the ISS most likely would have been abandoned for the first time in 19 years, ever since November 2nd, 2000, when Russian cosmonauts Yuri Gidzenko and Sergei Krikalev and NASA astronaut Bill Shepard first turned on the lights and started humanity's continuous presence in space. But NASA was well aware of this risk and sought to do something to avoid it. With the end of the shuttle program in sight, in 2005, NASA announced the Constellation program. Constellation began due to the Vision for Space Exploration, a detailed plan that was created in response to the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. But that plan had more objectives in mind, including expanding the state of human spaceflight at NASA, and to become a new way to inspire and regain public enthusiasm for space exploration in a way that had not been seen since the Apollo era. The plan was highly ambitious, seeking not only to complete the International Space Station by 2010, but to fully replace and retire the space shuttle at the same time, conduct human spaceflight by 2014, return humans to the moon by 2020, and ultimately bring humans to Mars not long after. This is why the Constellation's program logo has three different arcs, one representing Earth for the ISS, one for the Moon, and one for Mars. The goal for Mars was further expressed with the naming of the program's booster rockets, Ares, the Greek equivalent of the Roman god Mars. The Ares rocket would have been enormous, built from repurposed shuttle engines, solid rocket booster and external tank hardware. The RS-5 rocket was planned to be as big as the Saturn V and with solid rocket boosters on the sides giving it a maximum lift capacity of about 188 metric tons to low Earth orbit, in comparison to the shuttle's maximum of 24.4 metric tons and even Saturn's, Saturn V's maximum of 140 metric tons. RS-5 would have carried about 71 metric tons to the moon versus the Saturn's 5 45 metric tons, almost twice the payload capacity. However, only RS-1, built from the Shuttle-era solid rocket boosters and colloquially called the Stick, would be certified for human flight. The Vision for Space Exploration Plan and its goal of reaching Mars was even codified in the NASA Authorization Act of 2005, with that act directing NASA to, quote, develop a sustained human presence on the moon, including a robust precursor program to promote exploration, science, commerce, and US preeminence in space and as a stepping stone to future exploration of Mars and other destinations." End quote. The Constellation program was also the birthplace of the original design for the Orion capsule, at that time named simply the, the Crew Exploration Vehicle. 
NASA sought to have Orion developed by 2008 and carrying passengers by 2014, further demonstrating how ambitious Constellation really was. But by 2009, just four years after its inception, NASA already saw that that ambition was over budget, behind schedule, and increasingly unlikely to reach its goals. At the request of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, NASA convened the Review of United States Human Spaceflight Plans Committee, also known as the Augustine Commission, which ultimately found that Constellation could not be completed without substantial increases in funding. By 2010, Constellation was ultimately cancelled with the NASA Authorization Act of 2010, which authorized the final flight of the space shuttle, STS-135, using the Atlantis Orbiter and led to NASA starting the Space Launch System, or SLS, one year later. So, SLS, the rocket everyone loves to hate. SLS was based on Constellation, but it was also based on the Jupiter program, a little known family of planned super heavy lift launch vehicles that were part of the proposed DIRECT program. Direct like Constellation, was also derived from shuttle hardware, hence its name being a direct transition. The Jupiter rockets were intended to be the alternative to the Ares-1 and Ares-5 Constellation rockets, with Jupiter-130 being capable of delivering about 60 to 70 tons of cargo, including crew, to low Earth orbit, and Jupiter-246 carrying an unspecified amount of cargo and crew to the lunar surface. In contrast to Constellation and Jupiter, SLS was promised to be capable of delivering up to 95 tons to low Earth orbit with its Block 1 variant, and up to 130 tons to low Earth orbit with its Block 2 variant, which was also promised to be capable of crewed launches to Mars. During a Senate hearing in September 2011, it was stated that the SLS program had a projected development cost of 18 billion US dollars through 2017, with each launch promised to cost less than the shuttle. That projected cost is what made SLS very publicly appealing. But in reality, NASA for decades had been abused by several politicians as a means to siphon taxpayer money into their states for programs that ended up being extremely more expensive than what was promised, all while choking off innovation for sake of a constant velocity of cash flow. And SLS, especially with its cost plus contracting, gave those same politicians the opportunity to continue funneling an endless supply of cash into the same corporations as before, making those corporations lobbyists and, subsequently, the politicians whose campaigns they finance very happy. This is why, in fact, some have said that SLS actually stands for Senate Launch System. Now, costing several billion dollars over budget, while based on existing hardware, SLS is far behind schedule and is awfully reminiscent of the critiques against the Constellation program that ultimately led to its cancellation, quickly becoming something of a sunk cost fallacy. It's therefore easy to see why SLS is so heavily criticized for being extremely expensive with no real innovation, no commercial involvement, and a non-competitive nature of pumping money into the same old contractors with few results delivered. But that lack of delivery could soon change. 
On March 18, 2021, the SLS CS-1 rocket finally and successfully completed its full eight-minute green run test and is currently scheduled for its first uncrewed test launch, including a translunar injection trajectory on November 4th, 2021. Should that go well, SLS is planned to carry a crew of four astronauts, three from NASA and one from CSA, the Canadian Space Agency, to a lunar flyby around August 2023. Realistically, it's pretty unlikely SLS will be ready enough to reach that target for a crewed lunar flight, but at least it may happen within this decade. While the United States was trying to figure out which program to use, on the other side of the world, China was continuing its ambitions for human spaceflight. In 1992, China began planning Project 921, which included the Shenzhou and Tiangong programs. Shenzhou, Mandarin for Divine Vessel, had four test flights from 1999 to 2003 to prepare for its first crew flight later in 2003. On October 15, 2003, Shenzhou 5 successfully brought Yang Liwei to 14 orbits around the Earth for a total of 21 hours, 22 minutes and 45 seconds, making him the first Chinese national to reach space. Shenzhou would continue this through 2016 with five more missions, carrying 13 more Chinese astronauts, sometimes called taikonauts, to space. In between the later Shenzhou missions, the Tiangong program, or Heaven's Palace, brought two space stations to orbit, first on September 29th, 2011, with Tiangong-1, and again on September 15th, 2016, with Tiangong-2, with a possible third, perhaps, within this decade. But we won't go into much detail about Tiangong, as Sebastian from To The Future already discussed it in his fantastic episode about space stations as part of this series. If you haven't already, go check it out. Links in the description. So... With no shuttle anymore, a recently cancelled Constellation program, and the proposed SLS having only just been announced in 2011, NASA quickly realized that they needed to try and create a rapid path back into space since continuing to purchase seats on Soyuz just wouldn't be sustainable long term. The very same NASA Authorization Act of 2010, which cancelled the Constellation program and established the basis for SLS, also added one more element to the equation. 1.3 billion US dollars for an expansion of the existing commercial crew development program, also called CCDEV, over the next three years. CCDEV sought to award several companies with development funding to ensure NASA had several options available rather than lock itself into any one single point of failure, so to speak. Additionally, unlike SLS's cost-plus contracting, CCDEV contracts were awarded as fixed-price, pay-for-performance milestones. In the first uh, first year with CCDEV-1, NASA split 50 million US dollars between five companies. 3.7 million for Blue Origin to develop its composite pressure vessels and a pusher-type launch abort system, as opposed to the pull method that capsules had used for decades, such as with Soyuz and Apollo. 18 million for Boeing's recently designed CST-100 Starliner. 1.4 million for Paragon Space Development Corporation's Environmental Control Life Support System, Air Revitalized System Engineering Development Unit, Boy, that's a mouthful. $20 million for Sierra Nevada Corporation's Dream Chaser and $6.7 million for United Launch Alliance to get their Atlas V human rated. The following year in 2011, with CCDEV2, NASA continued to make it rain on them corporations with $270 million on some of the prior year's recipients, plus a new one that was just starting to prove itself. 
22 million to Blue Origin, 80 million to Sierra Nevada Corporation, 92.3 million to Boeing, and for the new player in the game, 75 million US dollars to SpaceX to develop their Dragon 2 and expand upon Dragon 1 commercial resupply's success、uh, with a newer and better version that would also be human certifiable. The next year, in 2012, NASA continued with CCDev 3. Later renamed to Commercial Crew Integrated Capability, or CCICAP, releasing another $1.1 billion in funding. Sierra Nevada's corporation secured another $212.5 million for Dream Chaser. SpaceX received another $440 million for Dragon 2 and Falcon 9, and Boeing got another $460 million for Starliner. With the CCDev program now exhausted, in 2012, NASA moved on to the Certification Products Contract, or CPC, awarding another $10 million to Sierra Nevada Corporation, $9.9 million to Boeing, and $9.6 million to SpaceX. CPC continued into its second phase, the Commercial Crew Transportation Capability, CCTCAP, which is where things really took off. You know, we're all about those puns here. CCTCAP sought to define one or more finalists for its long term commercial crew program. Those finalists would need to provide the final development, testing, and verifications needed to allow crewed flights to the ISS. On September 16th, 2014, NASA announced that its two finalists were Boeing with Starliner, receiving up to $4.2 billion US dollars, and SpaceX with Dragon 2, receiving up to $2.6 billion US dollars. First, let's start with Starliner. Starting in earnest in 2010 with funding CCDev 1, Boeing began developing the Starliner capsule as a means to carry a crew of up to seven passengers to the ISS or even beyond. Boeing even made the interesting choice of designing Starliner to be compatible with a variety of rockets, including Atlas V, Delta IV, Vulcan Centaur, and even SpaceX's Falcon 9. Between the years of 2011 to 2019, Starliner had seen several tests during its long road to human certification. Initially, there were successful drop tests to test the airbags under the vehicle, carried out first by Bigelow Aerospace, and then another test by Boeing themselves, both of which were successful. After the drop tests, Boeing invited two NASA astronauts to conduct an evaluation of the Starliner, reviewing various aspects such as communications, ergonomics, and crew interface. It was here that there was a slip in schedule in order for Boeing to reduce the mass of the spacecraft and to also address some aerodynamics issues, which were anticipated when the Starliner would be launched by the Atlas V. A couple of years later, would see a test anomaly arise where a hypergolic propellant leak was caused by faulty abort system valves. In May of 2019, Boeing conducted a successful hot fire test using a test article that was flight like, and November that year saw Boeing conduct the padaport test of the Starliner. The capsule accelerated away from the pad with no issues, however, one of the three parachutes failed to deploy, and the capsule landed using only two. Even with this, landing was deemed safe and the mission a success, with Boeing at the time not foreseeing any delays to the schedule arising from the parachute malfunction. Boeing's first orbital test in December 9- 2019 would see the Starliner suffer serious software glitches during its flight. An 11 hour offset in the mission clock aboard Starliner made it think it was in an orbital insertion burn when it was not. This caused the Starliner to consume more fuel than it should have, and as a result, the docking with the ISS was scrubbed from the mission and they proceeded to bring the Starliner back down to Earth. 
but this wasn't the only issue. In fact, it was later determined that there were so many software issues with Starliner, enough that Boeing even had to push a hotfix while the capsule was in orbit, that it carried a serious risk of potentially injuring or even killing all passengers on board had those fixes not been applied. But Boeing has finally made the software repairs necessary and passed all audits that NASA required and is ready to try again. In March 2021, Steve Stitch, the program manager for NASA's commercial crew program, mentioned that the scheduled launch date of April the 2nd, 2021 for the Starliner's OFT2 or Orbital Flight Test 2 would have to be delayed until at least after May when docking ports on the ISS would be available. Boeing wanted to be ready to perform its docking tests sooner, but they were unfortunately delayed in testing the software repairs and lost time when the facility experienced an extended power outage. All while Boeing was developing and later having difficulty with its Starliner capsule, SpaceX was also racing to the finish line. Beginning in 2011 and building upon the successes it had with Dragon 1, which started just one year earlier as part of NASA's Commercial Resupply Services program, SpaceX developed two variants of Dragon 2, a newer cargo variant called Cargo Dragon and the new Crew Dragon, which SpaceX initially called Dragon Rider. Interesting name. Like Starliner, Crew Dragon was designed to carry up to seven passengers, however, it was only designed to fly atop a Falcon 9 rocket. SpaceX had a rather unique approach with Crew Dragon, especially in terms of landing. Rather than use parachutes and an ocean splashdown, SpaceX intended to use the launch escape system, powered by its eight side-mounted Super Draco hypergolic thrusters to provide a propulsive descent to the ground landing site with parachutes and an ocean splashdown as a backup or for launch abort. However, this idea was later abandoned. Between 2011 and 2019, SpaceX performed hundreds of tests of its newly designed flight suits, life support systems, now being developed in part by Paragon Space Development Corporation, which had received funding during CCDEV-1, Super Draco thrusters, and seemingly endless drop tests to evaluate various parachute designs. One of these tests included a pad abort test on May 6, 2015, and a hover test later that year on November 24th. These and other tests were sufficient for NASA to certify the Demo-1 mission as early as December 2016. However, due to developmental delays, this did not occur until March 2nd, 2019, docking with the ISS for six days before splashing down in the Atlantic Ocean. But then, during a static fire test of the Super Draco thrusters one month later on April 20th, 2019, that same capsule was destroyed. Telemetry, high-speed camera footage, and analysis of recovered debris indicated that the explosion occurred due to a small amount of dinitrogen tetroxide that leaked into a helium line used to pressurize the propellant tanks. Thankfully, no one was injured, but this proved to be a major setback for SpaceX as they had to redesign and recertify many elements of the Dragon capsule, including using burst disks in lieu of valves and adding flaps over the Super Draco thrusters to seal them prior to splashdown in the ocean. The explosion also delayed an in-flight abort test SpaceX had yet to complete. SpaceX finished its upgrades in time to successfully repeat the static fire test later that year on November 13th. A few months later on, on January 19th, 2020, SpaceX then performed its needed in-flight abort test. 
which also was successful and ultimately certified SpaceX for its first crude uh, crude test, Demo 2. Launching on May 30th, 2020, Bob and Doug rode the Crew Dragon right into the history books as the men who returned American spaceflight to American soil, beating Boeing to the finish line and marking the first time in history that a commercial crew program flew astronauts to the ISS. NASA estimated that between all the various online platforms, roughly 10 million people around the world had tuned in to watch this launch. 19 hours after launch saw the Endeavour capsule approach the ISS before eventually docking. A warm welcome was given to Bob and Doug from Anatoly, Ivan, and Chris, who were aboard at the time. Whilst here, Bob and Doug spent over 100 hours completing various science experiments, and Bob actually completed four spacewalks alongside Chris Cassidy, where they had worked to replace batteries on the exterior of the ISS. The Crew Dragon has gone on to see two more launches as part of NASA's commercial crew program, including Crew-1, which carried NASA astronauts Michael Hopkins, Victor Glover, and Shannon Walker, and JAXA astronaut Soichi Naguchi on November 16, 2020. And recently, Crew-2, which carried NASA astronauts Shane Kimbrough and Megan MacArthur, ESA astronaut Thomas Pasquet, and ESA astronaut Akihiko Hoshide. Crew-2 was historic in many ways, too. Marked the first time where a JAXA relieved another JAXA astronaut from ISS duty, and the first time both a flight-proven capsule and flight-proven rocket were used for the commercial crew program. Further, Megan MacArthur, who is the wife of Bob Behnken, flew aboard the very same capsule and in the same seat and position as her husband. Truly incredible. Meanwhile, down at Boca Chica, Texas, SpaceX was still working away at their prototype human launch system, Starship. Prior to the 2020s, the only flight of this Starship system was that of Starhopper. However, this decade would see several hops. SN5 and 6 were the first to hop, then SpaceX decided on a revision to their test tanks over the next few generations. Then SN8, 9, 10, and 11 all saw really great flight profiles with the only major issue seeming to be sticking the landing. SN11's flight, however, had some weather complications as the forecast happened to call for Cloudy with a slight chance of Starship and the odd smattering of test tanks. However, looking forward onto SN15, SpaceX have made considerable design changes which should solve a lot of the problems they've been having, as well as creating a catch tower, which is designed to catch the craft instead of having to worry about designing legs. SpaceX have also recently broke ground on their Super Heavy booster, having both completed and dismantled their Pathfinder model BN1, a necessary step in learning how they will build future Super Heavy boosters further down the line. Work is now well underway with BN2, and at the time of this recording, a few components for BN2 have been manufactured and moved around ready for stacking. Also, recently, on 16th of April 2021, NASA announced that SpaceX had won their human landing system contract with their submission, the Lunar Starship. This will now see the Lunar Starship being used as the vehicle to take spacefarers from lunar orbit down to the lunar surface. Initially, for the first few missions, this will involve the Orion capsule docking directly with Lunar Starship to facilitate the lunar landing. 
However, over time, as Gateway is built, we will see that Orion dock with Gateway instead, using it as a lunar hub for onward transport to and from the lunar surface via Lunar Starship, as well as travel to and from low Earth orbit using the Orion capsule. However, on the 26th of April, Blue Origin has contested this contract with some rather strong claims and accusations. It remains to be seen what comes of their protest to this contract award. Speaking of Blue Origin, while Boeing and SpaceX were developing their own spacecraft, Blue Origin was working on their own craft as well, the New Shepard, intended to carry seven tourist passengers straight up past the Carman line and back down for an approximately 10-minute flight. Starting in 2006, Blue Origin began working on prototypes, which led to the first complete vehicle test on November 23rd, 2015. Since then, New Shepard has had 15 launch attempts, all of which were successful except for the first where the booster recovery failed. What is especially notable about New Shepard is that all of its flights included a propulsive landing of the booster, except for the first one. The last 14 of which, of course, were uh, successful. In fact, Blue Origin was the first in the world to successfully achieve seven flights with a single booster, that being NS3. Having just successfully completed their most recent test flight on April 14th, 2021, Blue Origin is slated to carry its first passengers past the Carman line no earlier than May 26, 2021. Blue Origin has also been working on their new Glenn rocket, a heavy lift orbital launch vehicle that will reportedly carry up to 45 tons to low Earth orbit. Announced in 2016, not a whole lot is known about New Glenn, as unfortunately, Blue Origin has been extremely secretive about its development. It has been rumored that New Glenn may seek to be certified for crewed missions, but until Blue Origin releases more information, we won't know for sure. And finally, to wrap up the last decade, we have Sierra Nevada Corporation's Dream Chaser. Having secured a total of around 322.5 million US dollars through all commercial crew development program phases, Dream Chaser was derived from NASA's HL-20 personnel launch system space plane concept and intended to carry up to seven passengers and cargo to the ISS. Work began on Dream Chaser by SpaceDev in 2004 and was later acquired by Sierra Nevada Corporation on October 21, 2008. Ever since then, it has completed several captive and drop test flights, but all further planned tests and missions are only using the cargo variant. As of 2021, Sierra Nevada Corporation has stated it is still committed to its crewed variant to be produced sometime within the next five years. While NASA was finding success with its commercial crew program and not to be outdone by the United States, Russia's Soyuz had three particularly interesting missions that occurred just within the last year alone. The Soyuz MS-16 was, interestingly enough, one of the first crewed flights of the Soyuz 2.1A launch vehicle, and it was also the first crewed Russian mission not to be launched from Baikonur Site-1. In fact, Baikonur Site-1 is also known as Gagarin's Start, as it is also the historic location where Yuri Gagarin boarded the Vostok 1 into orbit. Carrying cosmonauts Anatoly Ivanishin and Ivan Wagner, as well as astronaut Christopher Cassidy to the ISS, the Soyuz 2.1 began its first crewed maiden launch on the 9th of April 2020 to dock with the ISS. 
Later that year, we would see the Soyuz MS-17 quite literally yeet Sergei Rizikov, Sergei Kudzhvetkov, and Kathleen Rubens to the ISS using a new ultra-fast two-orbit rendezvous. From yeet to dock, it took all of three hours. Talk about one fast commute to work. Once parked up at the ISS, the crew of three got to work on their daily lives on the ISS right up until the 19th of March, 2021. Turns out they needed to go and unpark the MS-17 away from the Rasvet module and go repark it at the Poisk module as MS-18 needed the spot for its inbound travelers. Speaking of MS-18, about a month after the MS-17 reparked their Soyuz at Poisk, it launched using the tried-and-true yeet method on the 9th of April. As usual, it got to the ISS in about three or four hours. The MS-18 mission is currently in progress as of the recording of this episode and saw cosmonauts Oleg Novitsky and Pyotr Dubrov, as well as astronaut Mark T. Vandehai, uh, head up to the ISS. But Soyuz may soon be coming to an end. Starting somewhere between 2006 and 2009, Russia had began developing the next generation of crew capsules, originally called Federatsiya, but later renamed to Oriol, uh, manufactured by RKK Energia. Planned to carry up to six passengers, Oriol has a planned robotic test flight somewhere in 2023, with a potential crewed flight in 2025, and an uncrewed lunar orbit test one year later. But now, let's look to the future, yes, and have a look at what is coming, both planned and speculated. First, there's Shenzhou from the Chinese National Space Administration. So, Shenzhou 12 will mark the seventh crewed flight of the Shenzhou program and is planned to launch no later than June 2021. This Shenzhou launch is designed to ferry three Taikonauts to the Tianhe, which is the first module of the Chinese Large Modular Space Station. Originally planned as the second visiting mission for the Tiangong 2 space station in 2016, the mission was replanned to go to the CLMSS, which at the time of its launch would only consist of the Tianhe core module. With further future missions planned in the Shenzhou program, we next come to Shenzhou 13, which is scheduled to launch in October 2021, carrying three Tyco notes and cargo to continue the construction of the CLMSS, with future missions Shenzhou 14 and 15 also continuing the construction of the space station, and finally Shenzhou 16, which is estimated to be sometime in 2023 and will deliver the first long-duration crew to the Chinese space station. Back across the pond in the United States, SpaceX has some other interesting crewed missions planned, not including its crewed ISS missions. Inspiration 4 will be the first SpaceX mission to launch that is crewed only by private citizens. Scheduled for September 15, 2021, it will launch benefactor and commander Jared Isaacman, representing the role of leadership, Haley Arcano, the chief medical officer and representing the role of hope, Christopher Sembroski, mission specialist and representing the role of generosity, and lastly, Sayan Proctor, pilot, representing the role of prosperity. These four aforementioned roles are why the mission is called Inspiration 4. Uh, 
as it is a mission to send four humans to space who embody the roles of inspiration that they are given. After launch, the crew will enter low Earth orbit, where they will then uh, perform microgravity experiments with projects that traditionally wouldn't see this type of research being done due to the high cost barriers of space-based research. With a quick hop across the ponds of India, the ISRO's Gaganyan spacecraft will be the first Indian crewed spacecraft. Gaganyan began life in 2006 under the name Orbital Vehicle. In 2014, they then launched a suborbital test called the Crew Module Atmospheric Reentry Experiment, or CARE for short of a mock-up Gaganyan capsule aboard a geosynchronous satellite launch vehicle Mark III rocket, also referred to as the launch vehicle Mark III. The spacecraft is designed to fly three people. Originally, the first crewed mission was planned for December 2021, but had been delayed to no earlier than 2023. This mission will feature the largely autonomous capsule with a two- or three-person crew, orbiting Earth for up to a week at around 400 kilometers in altitude. Gaganyan is a little bit smaller than Crew Dragon at about 3.5 meters in diameter, 3.58 meters in height, weighs around 8.2 tons and has a pressurized volume of 8 cubic meters. Gaganyan, when launched, will be accompanied by a robot on board with a female-looking appearance called Vyomitra. During uncrewed missions, Vyomitra is expected to perform microgravity experiments, and she's also designed to support astronauts in crewed missions. She can mimic human activity, recognize other humans, and respond to their queries. Technically, she can also perform E-class functions, handle switch panel operations, and give environmental air pressure change warnings. Now, Pardon us for a moment while we get into a little bit of speculation territory. We previously talked about the Gateway Foundation's Voyager Station on another episode of Becoming Multiplanetary, which you can find in the card at the top of this video. On January 19th, 2021, the Gateway Foundation gave a detailed video presentation about its planned Voyager Station. Unlike the International Space Station, the Voyager Station would primarily be a luxury hotel for space tourists. The Voyager Station is projected to have over 11,600 square meters or 125,000 square feet of habitable space in 24 cylindrical exterior modules that kind of look like Bigelow habitat modules, although they're not, that would serve the purpose of a restaurant, event center, research facilities, and even villas. Additionally, along its exterior ring would be 44 escape vehicles, which appear to be Sierra Nevada Dream Chasers. The Voyager station would rotate at 1.25 RPM to simulate one-sixth Earth's gravity, which is the same as lunar gravity. Gateway Foundation seeks to begin construction in 2026 using automated assembly robots that they would first perfect using the P-Star assembly robots to build a smaller 40-meter gravity ring prototype. A lofty and ambitious goal. Let's see if they succeed. Next, there's Axiom Space. Axiom Space has already become an established name, especially in the space tourism industry, having so far booked Axiom 1, or AX1, which will fly Michael Lopez Alegria, a professionally trained astronaut hired by Axiom Space, and private citizens Aitan Stiva from Israel, Larry Connor from the United States, 
and Mark Pathy from Canada aboard a SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule in January 2022. It was also rumored that Axiom-1 would be flying Tom Cruise to the International Space Station to film a Mission Impossible movie. However, this has been moved to a later flight. That still blows my mind. Building upon their growing successes, Axiom Space now seeks to build a private space station. Starting first as modules attached to the ISS, Axiom Station will later detach from the ISS to become, as Axiom's website states, quote, a commercial laboratory and residential infrastructure in space that will serve as a home to microgravity experiments, critical space environment materials testing, and private and professional astronauts alike. Also a lofty and ambitious goal, although Axiom Space seems to have more capital and potential to make their goal a reality. Time will certainly tell. And finally, the Iranian Space Agency may soon send one of their own astronauts to space. As far back as 1990, Iran expressed its intention to send a human to space. Fast forward 15 years later, on November 21st, 2005, and that goal expanded to a full-fledged human space program replete with a space laboratory. In August 2010, then-President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad stated that this would happen no later than 2019, and that astronaut would be none other than himself. However, in 2017, the program was put on hold indefinitely. But Iran might not be done yet. While they do not have the equipment to produce a medium-lift rocket or full-scale spacecraft, unofficial Chinese sources, including Jinhuanet, have stated that Iran is in discussions with China to participate in their upcoming Chinese space station, Tianhe. So now, let's get to the main event. Artemis will see the return of humans to the moon for the first time since the Apollo program, which we went over in our last episode in this series, Race for the Moon. Predominantly carried out by NASA, though some US commercial spaceflight companies contracted by NASA, as well as international partner agencies who are expected to play a key role. Artemis has a stated goal of landing the first woman on the moon, with its long-term goals including establishing an expedition team, a sustainable presence on the moon's southern polar region, establishing a foundation for private companies to form lunar operations and build a lunar economy, and eventually sending humans to Mars. In terms of the hardware for this mission, we see a revised version of the Orion capsule, originally from the Constellation program, though the Orion of the SLS era has undergone significant changes from its Constellation counterpart. The Orion capsule does seem similar to the Apollo CSMs used in the past, and this is somewhat poetic, as the Artemis mission's namesake within Greek mythology is the twin sister of Apollo. Designed for a crew capacity of between two to six humans, it's a little roomier than the Apollo CSMs were, with a pressurized volume of 690.6 cubic feet, though only 316 cubic feet of this volume being habitable, just a little under half. As we already spoke about SLS earlier, we're going to move swiftly along to another hardware component of the Artemis missions, and that is the Lunar Gateway. Planned to be a small space station in lunar orbit, its function will be to serve as a solar-powered communications hub, science lab, short-term habitation, and holding area for rovers and other robots. We can expect to see several science disciplines being studied on the station covering planetary science, astrophysics, heliophysics, fundamental space biology, and the effects on human health and performance. 
With so many different topics being studied here, we may even see new interdisciplinary sciences arise from this. We have already have a specific word for lunar sciences, selenology, named after the Greek goddess of the moon, Selene. Gateway development will see cooperation between NASA, ESA, JAXA, and CSA, the Canadian Space Agency, in its construction, and even more countries came together to an understanding on the Artemis mission in the form of the Artemis Accords. The Artemis Accords are an agreement between eight initial signatories who were Dr. Megan Clark, current head of the ASA on behalf of Australia, for Canada, Lisa Campbell, current president of the CSA, Ricardo Fracaro, Undersecretary of the State at the Presidency of the Council of Ministers representing Italy, Inoue Shinji, Minister of State for Space Policy, and Hagiuda Koichi, Minister of Education, Culture, Sports, Science, and Technology on behalf of Japan. For Luxembourg, we have Franz Fayot, Minister of the Economy, Her Excellency Sarah Bint Youssef Alamiri, Minister of State for Advanced Technologies, and Chairwoman of UAE Space Agency on behalf of the United Arab Emirates, Dr. Graham Turnock, Chief Executive for the UK Space Agency on behalf of the UK Government, and lastly, Jim Bridenstine, then Administrator of NASA on behalf of the United States of America. The Accords are a set of principles for cooperation in the civil exploration and use of the Moon, Mars, comets, and asteroids for peaceful purposes. As quoted from the Accords documents themselves, they are inspired and very much grounded in the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. The Accords would see a ninth signatory, Ukraine, one month after its initial signing, and a month after that, Brazil would sign a statement of intent to the Accords. With these Accords, the world would see an international partnership, much like we saw with the ISS over 20 years ago, with new member nations signing on to bring exciting possibilities for exploring and living on the moon. But Artemis and the Lunar Gateway aren't the only possibilities for the moon. The future may hold many new exciting possibilities for permanent establishments on the lunar surface. In a recent three-part episode of Deep Dive here on the Total Space Network, Miko and Shaboch explored the possibilities of very tall skyscrapers, mag rails, centrifugal spacecraft launchers or spin launch complexes, in situ resource utilization, all sorts of energy production possibilities, and even space elevators. Really some amazing possibilities, and you should definitely check out their videos. Links are, as always, in the description. The last 10 years started slow for human spaceflight progress, but rapidly accelerated near the end of the last decade, largely due to commercial investment and NASA's commercial crew program. We've seen many new startups pose a serious threat to the long-established big players, with more of them popping up every day. This decade, while only just starting, already shows incredible promise for progress, with many new human-certified rockets and spacecraft, upcoming space stations, and lunar missions well underway. Not long from now, maybe just within the next 10 to 15 years, we will almost certainly see the next giant leap for mankind, human footprints on Mars. But that's where we'll pass the baton off to Jishwan and Sebastian for the next To The Future episode, where they'll go into Mars Colony 1, asteroid mining, and more. Check out their channel and subscribe if you haven't already. Link is in the description. 
Speaking of subscribing, if you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like and subscribe to our channel. And finally, if you really like this episode, we'd love to have your support on Patreon. It really helps us out with producing content like this, getting better cameras, microphones, and software licenses. If you want to support us, go to patreon.com forward slash total space. And speaking of Patreon, as always, we like to thank those that support us. And those Patreons are Anthony Mann, Warhawk, Adrian Moisa, Angry Astronaut, Howard Walker, Sammy Oscuro, What About It, Jishwan and Sebastian, Gio Pagliari, Framrick, and Susie R. So, that about wraps it up for us here today on Becoming Multiplanetary. We also have other fantastic shows here on the Total Space Network, including Deep Dive with Miko, The Space Update with Ryan, Space Specials with Adele, and coming soon, STEM Study Segment with Astro Rodi. You can find all these and more here on our YouTube channel or by going to totalspace.net. And finally, be sure to check out To The Future's YouTube channel for the next episode in this Humans in Space mega series collaboration. Until next time, I've been Kage, one of your co-hosts for today's episode. And I've been Rich LB, also one of your co-hosts. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll see you next time.